This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. Register now at healthed.com.au. Do you keep a record of your patient's cumulative dose of oral corticosteroids? Do you prescribe a whole bottle at a time of oral steroids and leave open the opportunity for patient self-administration? Are you using tapering doses, bursts of higher doses, or chronic administration of low-dose oral steroids. Now is a good time to review all our patients with asthma and ensure that we have the basics right and also to consider early referral of patients who are struggling with asthma to asthma clinics as much can be done for them. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Professor Vanessa McDonald and Associate Professor John Blakey. Professor McDonald, tell us about yourself. Hi, David. Um, my name's, as you say, Vanessa McDonald. I'm a professor of nursing at the University of Newcastle and a um, honorary clinical academic nurse at John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle. And I have had a long history of uh, practice in asthma as well as in asthma research. Thank you, Vanessa. And Professor Blakey, tell us about yourself. Hi, David. Thanks for inviting us on to talk about asthma. So I'm a respiratory consultant with an interest in asthma at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth. I trained in the UK and was lucky enough to work at several of the leading asthma centres there. And I've been in Australia about four years now. Uh, and delighted to be working with people like Vanessa and uh, trying to improve the quality of asthma care across the country. It's so good to have you both. Today, we're looking at oral corticosteroids stewardship for asthma in both adults and adolescents. So let's start with the first question. Why is it important for us to be discussing the use of oral corticosteroids in asthma? I'll kick off and starting to answer that then, David. So as your listeners will know, that asthma is tremendously common across Australia, affecting at least 10% of the population. Many of these people will have a burst of oral corticosteroids prescribed for them. Somewhere in the ballpark of one in six people who with relatively well-controlled asthma will have some steroids in the next year. So there's a very high frequency of prescribing of these steroid tablets. What we know from observational studies is that a significant proportion of people will be receiving a large amount of steroids. Our colleague uh, Mark Hewan and others have, have undertaken a study using PBS data showing that of people who are using higher dose inhaled steroids, about a quarter of those will receive more than a gram of prednisolone over a five-year period. If we're looking at people with more difficult to treat asthma, between 30 and 50% of those people are on continuous oral steroids when they're referred across to severe asthma centers. Now, clearly steroids have a diverse and serious set of side effects uh, potentially associated with them. And the worrying thing is that many of these uh, individuals who are taking steroids, are, are, are their indications for steroids are not 
uh, robust and it could potentially could be treated with other medicines that would prevent the need for steroids. Vanessa, do you have anything to add to that? I think John summarised that very well. I think um, maybe another point to make is within that um, that study that was led by Mark Hugh that um, evaluated some PBS prescribing. We also showed that there was a high proportion of people that were prescribed a dose of oral corticosteroids greater than, say, one gram that were non-adherent to their asthma treatment, so evidenced by um, not filling their prescriptions. So this was in a, um, a relative, like not necessarily a severe asthma population, a more mild to moderate population. So it demonstrates that, you know, we're using oral corticosteroids in people that not using their inhaled corticosteroids. So really demonstrates work that needs to be done. Now, that's an important point, but uh, I want to go back to you, John. You mentioned uh, a, a dose of greater than one gram every five, over five years. What is in fact the definition of a large dose of oral corticosteroids. So I think we've become increasingly aware that a relatively small cumulative exposure to oral corticosteroids can be harmful. If we are looking at the difference between people who've had less than half a gram with those people who've had, say, one to two grams of exposure, then there's a significant difference in the incidence of side effects such as strokes, heart failure, diabetes, pneumonia, many of those serious adverse outcomes that perhaps GPs might not initially think of beyond osteoporosis. There's clearly also a a dose dependency in those side effects. There's a small increased risk of having osteoporosis if you've been exposed to a course or two of steroids But if you're on regular steroids or you've had many births over the last few years, you could be up to five times higher risk of having osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess also it's important to emphasize that even the short births are not risk-free. So if in large observational studies involving thousands of people, if you look at people with asthma who have taken a burst of steroids versus those who haven't, and follow them up for the next month or so, there's a much higher incidence of things like infections or, or DVTs in, in those people who've had the steroids. So although the, the beneficial effects of steroids happen quite quickly for asthma, the harm is also happening pretty quickly as well. Do you mind if I summarize some of the points you've made because they're really intriguing? The first is that you've, as the studies have found that doses greater than say two grams is associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, not something we think about. Uh, Even short bursts are not risk-free, and you mentioned not just infections, but DVTs. So John, I'll just put to you that uh, cardiovascular disease and DVTs are not well or oft-spoken problems of oral corticosteroid prescription. Yeah, that's right, David. I think some of the things that we might immediately think of, like, you know, increasing BMI or or hypertension are not actually that well related to cumulative exposure to steroids, but just over one gram of of the prednisolone will put people at observationally put people at higher incidence risk of of those outcomes. And obviously that the side effects compound, you know, you have somebody whose asthma is not that well controlled, They take some steroids, they maybe put some weight on or have an infection, have some cardiac problems, psychological ill effects. All of those things will maybe reducing their activity, increasing their breathlessness, putting them at high risk of having more steroids going forwards. Now, having heard all that, 
it's really important that we actually fully understand the current indications for oral corticosteroids. What are they? So uh, asthma exacerbations by definition don't just involve airway narrowing through, through uh, the action of the muscles around the air tubes. They also involve inflammation. And most of that inflammation is the sort of type two eosinophilic allergic type inflammation that responds to steroids. So those trials that were undertaken in the 1960s that showed a substantial benefit in the use of oral steroids for acute asthma, reducing symptoms, reducing the need for hospitalizations, uh, they have demonstrated that we need to address both bronchospasm and inflammation. I think it's important to emphasize, though, that most, if not all, of these trials were done in, in the acute hospital setting, the emergency department type setting, not in primary care. And it's not common that people will have their lung function assessed mm -hmm. to confirm they have a reduction in their airway caliber. Um, and, and, and so there's always a suspicion that some people are getting steroid bursts when perhaps they're just more symptomatic and it's not been proven that it's definitely an uh, asthma, asthma exacerbation that's causing that problem. The use of chronic oral corticosteroids is something that should really only be undertaken in specialist clinics and really limited to a tiny minority of people who have genuine glucocorticoid resistance or have something related to asthma like uh, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. So we'd be very keen that our colleagues in primary care don't start people on regular steroids. It's much more important to, to refer in and give a call to the respiratory team and say, please see this person urgently, they're unstable. Vanessa, what's your experience in this? Yeah, well, I would agree with everything that um, John has said. I mean, we see the Severe Asthma Web-Based Database, which is a national registry for patients in Australia and New Zealand and Singapore that um, recruits people with severe asthma, indicates that about 25% of that population here within Australia um, are on maintenance oral corticosteroids, which is lower than the UK, for example, um, which is around 50%, but still um, terribly high. So it really is, you know, an area of focus that needs to be given attention. I guess, you know, starting oral corticosteroids in individuals at a maintenance dose, does it does become difficult to then be able to remove that um, steroid in a lot of cases. And um, I mean, we do have now very efficacious treatments that allow us to reduce oral corticosteroids in severe asthma patients. But when John talked about the chronic use of oral corticosteroids, I think we have some work to do in terms of reducing that and using a number of different treatments um, that we now have available to us will allow us to do that. But certainly in people that are using it for acute asthma, ensuring that that's what's being treated, I think is really important as well. I think there is a problem that I would like to put before the both of you. You've both made a very strong point that in fact, good asthma control is essential in the first place. That might in fact prevent or at least minimize exacerbations. The second point that John made was that the studies in hospital really allowed the specialist to know when an exacerbation was indeed one, not just a patient feeling a bit more symptomatic than previously, which again is probably due to poorer control. We now have patients who can buy Sabas across the counter um, without necessarily having their asthma assessed. And there are issues that really 
can confuse how a patient's asthma is both assessed by the GPs and managed by the GPs. Do you both have any advice or help for us? I think too, if I can um, just start by answering the first question about people with asthma buying over-the-counter Sava, I think, you know, having any form of asthma or any degree of severity of asthma requires um, that to be assessed uh, by a, a medical practitioner um, in order to um, put that patient on the right treatment path. So that's the first point I'd like to make. And often you say about asthma being uncontrolled being you know one of the primary problems we're facing here and I think that that's um, that's very true and some of the basics in terms of asthma management are probably not being addressed as well as they should be and that's leading to that poor control and when I talk about the basics of asthma management I'm talking about things like adherence to treatment or concordance with treatment I'm talking about things like using inhaler devices correctly. This is a major problem for patients with asthma, but research also indicates that it's actually a major problem for healthcare professionals as well. Mm. So with a high proportion of healthcare professionals not actually able to use the inhalers that are being prescribed to these patients correctly and the patient's not receiving the proper instruction or guidance on, on how to use them. And, you know, it might be that the primary care um, consultation is really busy, busy and I, I acknowledge that, and there's a lot of stuff going on, and, and perhaps the GP might think the pharmacist will do that, and then the pharmacist might think someone else will do that. And um, unfortunately, often it goes with patients not being shown how to use their devices correctly. And these things are really common reasons for poor asthma control, which then leads to an unnecessary use of oral corticosteroids when someone then leads to an exacerbation. Such important points, Vanessa. Uh, John, I expect you would agree with that. Anything to add to it? I would absolutely agree with, with everything Vanessa said. I mean, I think the perhaps the magnitude of effect of taking a, a low dose of inhaled steroids regularly is is underplayed. We know from several studies now that that people who either don't take their inhalers or or taking their inhalers with a, with an error in the inhalation, they are far more likely to have exacerbations than people who are using low-dose inhaled corticosteroids regularly. And in terms of clinical effect, taking high-dose inhaled corticosteroids regularly gives you the same protection against an exacerbation as taking a, more than five milligrams of tablet steroids a day. So they really do have a very strong beneficial effect if used as indicated. Before we move on to the correct use, if you like, of oral corticosteroids, if I was to review my patient's uh, in, in light of this conversation, what sorts of things should I be looking out for that says, David, you've got to have a look at this patient and what's happening here? So what are some of the red flags? I guess symptoms are the first thing. So, you know, if you're looking at someone who is waking at nighttime because of their asthma, has symptoms when they wake up in the morning, has um, limited activity because of asthma symptoms, uses their short-acting bronchodilator a couple of times a week. They're all guiding symptoms that the patient has poor control. But then if you look at the bigger picture, there are also risk factors for exacerbation um, that occur in individuals as well. And, you know, some of these might relate to social determinants of health. 
um, such as lower socioeconomic status, but others um, relate to having um, certain comorbidities, of course, uh, bloody eosinophils is a risk factor for future exacerbation, as is anxiety and depression and things like that, smoking, obviously. So all of those things um, would be real flags. Um, I'm sure there are others that are not on the top of my head and John might add in. But yeah, they're certainly the red flags, the symptoms that people are experiencing, their level of adherence, and then their risk factors and comorbidities. Thank you, Vanessa. John, anything to add to Vanessa's? Well, David, if I was going to give you some advice about who to review, I would just say everybody. <laughs> so we know from inha- from studies using smart inhalers that only about 6% of inhaled medicine is taken correctly and on time. Wow. And so if you think about that, and in conjunction with all of those people out there who are either smoking or have uncontrolled rhinitis or have got other comorbidities that make them feel breathless, such as, um, uh, you know, inducible laryngeal obstruction, so narrowing in the middle airway, uh, or or an inefficient dysfunctional breathing pattern. There are so many things we can do for people uh, with asthma and related conditions that will prevent them having these harmful tablet steroids. And I guess a lot of the time, it's about ensuring that people have uh, appropriate information in front of them, so they can make that subconscious decision around how much hassle is it for me to take this regular medicine versus how much benefit am I getting from it? Let's just say now that um, I have a patient and my patient clearly has been having quite a lot of exacerbations. I have assessed technique and think, look, the technique seems good enough. When do I start thinking that this patient needs more than just inhaled corticosteroids? Or what else should I be thinking about? So Vanessa, do you want to talk first to your expert area for these that are assessing the treatable traits and then maybe we can we can navigate around to the add-on therapies? Yeah, sure. I think when you see a patient where you feel like you've kind of got the, the adherence right, the self uh, the inhaler device technique right, they're using the treatment, but they're still not getting the the beneficial effects that you would expect or you feel that they're still at risk. A comprehensive assessment of the patient would be um, the next step. And that would be identifying like, well, is there anything else going on from a pulmonary perspective? You know, is are there comorbidities related to this person that are causing increasing symptoms? Mm. John mentioned a few already, um, vocal cord dysfunction, rhinitis, mm. dysfunctional breathing, obesity anxiety and depression that could be causing symptoms that may mimic asthma, particularly with anxiety. So understanding, I guess, by doing a comprehensive assessment, what the pulmonary kind of traits are that might be complicating the asthma, what the extra pulmonary traits are, Mm -hmm. like those comorbidities that I mentioned, and then what risk factors there are as well, like the obesity and smoking and, and perhaps physical in, um, inactivity and deconditioning. So these are things, um, I, and I mean, I guess the other thing is that probably becomes uh, comes before all of that is, is this asthma? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So have you got objective confirmation mm. that the person has asthma? Have you done um, spirometry and, and shown reversible airflow limitation? 
um, in response to a bronchodilator. So, so I should have said that first, <laughs> but then following the confirmation of the diagnosis, that comprehensive assessment to see what else is actually contributing to this poor symptom control and how can you manage those kind of things? Yes. Um, and, and it may be that they require referral onto um, a specialist asthma clinic to try and assess some of these things like vocal cord dysfunction and to then kind of manage it within a multidisciplinary type approach. A terrible question for both of you is that we all know this. Spirometry done by someone who doesn't do it often is probably, I guess, you know, how much do you bank on that result? So we, we do need to confirm the diagnosis. Absolutely, Vanessa. But we certainly can't refer every patient we think has asthma for spirometry. Uh, there's probably just too many of them. So how do we get around this problem? I wish I had the answer. <laughs> well, well, I would, I would say, David, that you, I think it's not something that we can avoid or rationalise. If people haven't had lung function tests to confirm a diagnosis, they need them doing. It's just, it's like saying, oh, this person's got chest pain. I wonder if they've got ischemic heart disease, but I'm not going to do any tests. This person's thirsty. Maybe they've got diabetes. I'm not going to do any tests. It's, it's not acceptable, in, in my opinion. Um, I think, you know, it, it doesn't take long to do spirometry and that impacts people's lives often for decades, you know, and it also has a huge cost impact to them and to the health system if we are mistreating people. So cross-sectional studies would suggest at least 50% of people have started an asthma treatment having never had any tests. And then if you then do a cross-sectional study of people treated for asthma, a good third of those people um, don't have any objective evidence of the condition. Um, it comes to the most important point, isn't it? As Vanessa had said, do they indeed have asthma? And a lot of this banks on just this barometry and the reversibility that we can see. And so I, I, I guess my point was a little bit cheeky. So what if they wait? So what if you referred for a spirometry and the patient had to wait? Because the results are well worth it. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And also, it's not just spirometry, and we get useful information from other kinds of tests as well, such as exhaled nitric oxide and oscillometry and, and various other things that we can, we can identify that not only is it asthma, but what kind of asthma yeah. can we link together the pattern of disease that we see with a drug that's likely to benefit the patient? Can we match those two things together? And I think if I could just add on, like, in terms of a serious answer, and I think one of your one of the th points that you were kind of alluding to was that if you're not doing it regularly in primary care, do you have someone within the primary care service that is able to perform spirometry? So not all spirometry has to be done under a specialist laboratory condition, you know, and we, if we could do more um, spirometry in primary care, I think it would be fantastic. And I, I would like to say that there are um, training resources available um, for spirometry as well. And through, so that's through the um, National Asthma Council, uh, National Asthma Council, yeah, that have training um, available. We're currently about to launch a HETI module on, on doing spirometry. So, I mean, it'd be good to see more spirometry being done in primary care. Vanessa, 
<laughs> I was waiting for that. I was so hoping that you would say we've got resources for not just for not not the doctors, but certainly to practice nurses because they will in fact be doing most of it. Yeah. And another resource I, I'd like to give a plug for actually while we're here is um the Severe Asthma Toolkit, which has um a whole repository of resources for managing um, not only severe asthma but also for asthma um, and there's there's videos there's downloadable infographics there's clinical practice recommendations so this has been developed by a group of experts within Australia and internationally and um, really is probably the most comprehensive clinician-based training resource that's available. Wonderful. I'll get a link to that from you later. So let's just go back to the topic itself. So if that's the case uh, that my patient, I'm just trying to work out now, when will I actually say, ah, my patient actually needs oral corticosteroids? So David, I think if you see somebody who's got a convincing history for an asthma exacerbation and you are convinced that you can hear wheeze when you examine them and wheeze meaning not stridor or something that might be large airway collapse or and or they've got a drop in their peak flow of a substantial amount uh, or a drop in their spirometry and then I think you would be confident to start some steroids. It's important to emphasize as well that there are clear guidelines about how much steroid people should receive uh, and there's guidelines in Australia are similar to other countries saying in the ballpark of 37.5 to 50 milligrams for five days, possibly up to 10 days. But, but higher doses and longer courses are not indicated. And what we often see are tapering courses. So it's given for a week and then slowly reduced. And that hugely increases the exposure of people to, to steroids. So it's very unlikely that people will need those uh, very long courses and they're not they're not evidence-based so, so I think if, if, you, if you see somebody who fits the bill and you give them the the relevant amount of steroid the other thing I would suggest to to anybody in primary care is to be very clear on the prescription that if you're prescribing five days what you don't want is the pharmacy to dispense a whole bottle of tablets which is a common thing mm -hmm. so the patient has lots of spare tablets in their kitchen cupboard and then they can go and get some the next time they don't feel quite so well I don't think many of us do that, John, but it's such a clever way to make sure that the patient doesn't self-manage. And in terms of the question you asked earlier about when you might consider referring, I guess we would be keen for people to have a low threshold for either the referring or seeking advice. So I guess our, our rule of thumb is two plus two equals a review. So if you have two exacerbations a year and you're on two medicines like lab or ICS and they're being taken, then you should be thinking, well, what else is going off? And if there's not something obvious, like they smoke 30 a day, then you should think about, should I refer them now before they start to accumulate more harm? It's not just the harm from the steroids, but every time somebody has an asthma attack, their lung function never quite goes back to normal. So they, they, they start to go downhill with their lung function with these attacks. And so we have plenty of people in our clinic, I'm sure Vanessa does as well, whose lung function is 30, 40% predicted just from having had lots of asthma attacks. From the GP's point of view, having put the patient on it, what, what should we be keeping in mind as to what can happen and how do we 
minimize, if you like, some of the complications that can happen. So what are the complications and how can we minimize uh, the adverse uh, effects of oral corticosteroids should they occur? Okay, well, I'll start. I'll, I'll say that in medicine generally, I think we treat what we look for and we look for what we know. And so I think raising awareness with, with you know, initiatives such as this and, and, and with the position paper from the Thoracic Society that Vanessa and I were involved in, and also some materials on the website that, that Vanessa's mentioned, and also with Asthma Australia, if people are more aware of the harm that steroids can do and the side effects that can occur, I think they're more likely to look for them. And also we should, we should counsel the people who are taking the steroids better. I think if there was a new medicine that came out and said, oh, this, this drug will increase your risk of having a you know, cardiovascular heart failure, say by threefold or, or a pneumonia by threefold, you know, the patients would want to know that. Mm-hmm. And I think we should be better about using them, their vigilance to say that, um, that they should be on the lookout for anything like that. We're lucky now that we have often electronic medical records. So it's easy to check back and see how much of something somebody's had. And so if people have had a reasonable exposure then it's think, well, maybe now's the time to do a bone density scan. Maybe now's the time to double check what their blood pressure is. Opportune assessments next time they come in for those kinds of problems. Well, uh, John mentioned the need for counselling of patients in terms of having them understand what the potential side effects might be. And you know, I think that's really important, not only for that course of oral corticosteroids that they're about to embark on, but also for what he mentioned earlier, like having those doses at home and then thinking, okay, I'll just go and um, have a couple more because I'm not feeling as great. And I've got this weekend coming up, which I know patients do that. But if they're aware of, you know, the side effects and the the low dose that is required in order to start to experience those side effects, then that counselling becomes increasingly important. And, you know, we talked about the one gram, cumulative one gram dose. So that's a cumulative dose across a lifetime. And, you know, if that's, if, if you're talking to patients, it really is only four lifetime courses of oral corticosteroids before they might start to experience side effects. And that could be a potential message that we use to communicate with patients. Not so we don't, not so we scare them into not taking them because mm-hmm. they need them, they need them, but or maybe to perhaps rationalize that um, they know that they need to use it during an acute attack. But if they are using them erroneously on occasions to kind of give a message that might prevent that a little. Okay. I've, I've actually definitely heard of patients wanting to make sure they can go to a wedding or something like that exactly. and top up. <laughs> yeah. So are there things that we can do that are potentially oral steroid sparing? Yeah, absolutely. David. I think we mentioned quite a few of those things in terms of medicine making good decisions on who to give steroids to and, and not giving people too many tablets. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also mentioned um, the sorts of treatments that can reduce the steroid need for steroids in primary care. And there are small beneficial effects from the bronchodilators and antilucast. Um, but the key thing that we've had now over the last uh, few years is the access to biologic agents. And that's really revolutionized our, our care of asthma. Drugs um, that we've had available to us, particularly the newer ones like methylizumab and benralizumab, they are at least half the risk of having an asthma attack in randomized controlled trials. 
and in uh, real world initiatives like the um, sort of uh, excellent observational studies that are going across the, across Australia, the registries, we see that effect is even larger. And so they have a huge redu reduction in the number of flare-ups people have, and at least half of people who are on chronic steroids will get off those steroids if they're put onto one of the biologic agents. So it really has been a, a, a game changer for us. And it's still one of those messages I don't think has quite got out into in all aspects of primary care, um, that sometimes there's the attitude of, oh, well, you're on the inhalers, what more can we do? Mm -hmm. Well, there are lots more things that we can do. And one of those things is, is are these newer agents. And even, um, even referring patients to a specialist asthma clinic and have them undergo a systematic assessment has been shown to reduce the oral corticosteroid burden by 50% even wow. in the absence of a biologic. So if they're referred to a severe asthma clinic, they, there's things that can be done in addition to the biologics that might reduce um, the oral corticosteroid burden in patients that may not be eligible or appropriate for. And I think the other thing that um, I'd like to raise the flag for is using biomarkers to actually identify what type of asthma somebody has. So John mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about T2 high asthma. So that's people with um, it, it, bloody eosinophils um, and high um, fractional exhaled nitric oxide. Now they're the patients that are most likely to respond not only to the biologics, but also to the oral corticosteroids so that they can help kind of identify those people that are most likely to respond to um, particular treatments. And Sorry, Vanessa, I was going to say, I think you raise a really excellent point there, that the, the, the system of care is what's important in terms of the biologics as well as the drug. Yeah. Sorry for interrupting. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. And, you know, you can measure bloody eosinophils by doing a full blood count so it's accessible and available to people in primary care. What I'm hearing from you both that's really been so different from the past is that GPs should look out for patients who are actually been taking uh, oral corticosteroids, either low dose for long periods of time or high dose in, in, in short spaces of time. And actually not just say, oh dear, we have to educate them, but really ask two questions. Uh, what type of asthma do they really have? And are they in fact a good candidate for these new biologics because I think that um, always just looking out for patients so that we can sit them down and and, and have long conversations about education is is something that we sit we we are aware of but it doesn't seem to have if you like another option but now there are options and I really love hearing about this. Yeah, I would agree there are now options. It makes a severe asthma clinic a much nicer place to work, actually, mm -hmm. now that there are those options for patients and um, that will improve their asthma outcomes. And, and patients will say, you know, this has changed my life. And, and whether that be due to a biologic or whether it be due to actually identifying what's causing those mm. symptoms and treating that accordingly, for example, identifying a comorbidity like vocal cord dysfunction and, and ensuring they access speech um, pathology for the exercises to minimise those symptoms. There are options for patients and we just have to um, ensure that they have access to those. John, anything to add to the great options you've put before us today? 
Just kind of add to what Vanessa was saying. I think I completely agree with her that one of the the most rewarding things from the clinic is that when we see people come in who they don't often have one problem, because if they had one problem, somebody would probably have fixed it by now. I mean, you do get the occasional patient with very high inflammation eosinophils that we give a biology to and they're miraculously better. But usually it's a case of they do need to see the specialist nurses, the physios, the speech pathologist uh, in some combination um, and addressing various other problems. And, and then overall, we, you get a much bigger beneficial effect. Uh, and we've mentioned the biologic agents, but you know there are also other treatments that we can use in, in the specialist centers. Um, some of those will be drug treatments like uh, long-term azithromycin or sorry, longer-term azithromycin treatments are used in some circumstances in, in specialist centers. We target some some individuals for bronchial thermoplasty type interventions. So there there are biologics, but there are also other treatments available and obviously lots of new treatments coming through. And one of the big issues, I guess, in the past was if there weren't treatments available, but also relatively few trials of new treatments. But now there's certainly a wealth of new products coming along that appear to be beneficial in early phase trials that that we can also give people the opportunity to volunteer for those studies moving forward. Well, that's exciting. So as we come to the end of the interview, I would like you both to just speak to our GP listeners uh, with your key messages. Uh, We'll start with you, Vanessa. Thanks, David. I would say don't forget the basics, um, and that's inhaler technique, adherence, um, identification of worsening symptoms and written action plans get the diagnosis right, identify if people are continuing to have issues and if they are, look at referring on at the time of those red flags that we discussed so that um, patients can get the types of treatments that they require that are available in specialist clinics and just remember the impact of the cumulative dose of oral corticosteroids Um, and and the long-term impacts that that has on patients when managing asthma so that, you know, all those things can come together nicely. Thank you, Vanessa. John? Uh, I would endorse all those things that Vanessa has said. Uh, I think if you've ever looked after somebody who you've given some acute corticosteroid courses to and you you see there's a, a rapid and profound benefit from them or change from them. If you've ever taken any steroids, you'll know there's a relatively rapid and profound change associated with that. And I think we all, we have to bear in mind that's that's beneficial for the asthma, but we're also getting rapid, profound changes elsewhere in the body that can be significantly harmful to people going forwards. Uh, and so we need to make sure that everybody understands. The, the benefits as well as the harms and we're making informed best decisions on who to give the, the steroids to and how much and for how long and what could we do instead. I thank you both for your time and for the teaching. Thanks, thank you. Dad. Great to talk to you. Bye bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice. 
wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.